Welcome to Mind Love, episode 334. Today's episode is all about aligning your tasks with your passions, uncovering your essence to fulfill your dharma. Equanimity is really the distance between impulse and response. It's the distance between something that agitates, annoys you, and the way you respond to that thing. And what Viktor Frankl said is that in between those two points is a space. And inside that space is where your freedom lies. So if something irritates you and you react immediately, well, then you don't have much freedom. And the reason that you don't have much freedom is because you didn't have any choices of how you could have responded to that thing because you responded so immediately to it. So you think about like you, Melissa, like you, you like read like more than most people I know, you're like constantly learning, you're developing new skills. But if you don't have any space to use those in these moments of discomfort, well, then it doesn't really matter, right? All the skills you built doesn't really, it, 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 it's all for naught. Turn up your frequency with Mind Love. Bite-sized brain hacks for seekers, dreamers, and doers. It's time to give your mind a little love with your host, Melissa Monti. If this is your first time giving your mind a little love, don't forget to hit the subscribe button. Mind love is a habit, and the more you give your mind that love and intention, the better you'll feel about yourself and your life. Plus, it's really a win-win because more subscribers means Mind Love attracts even more amazing guests to bring you their wisdom. So don't forget to subscribe. Do you ever look at other people smiling, happy, thriving, and think, why does it look so easy for them? Here I am, struggling, stressed out, overthinking, overwhelmed, just spinning my wheels, and it looks like she's just gliding through life with ease. I've come to believe it's all about purpose. When you've got a bigger purpose in your life, you actually know what that purpose is, and you move toward it a little bit each day, things just start to flow. There's this saying I keep coming back to, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. And this hits deeper than just the words. When I was younger, I was chasing all the wrong things. The highest paying job, the charming guy who was all talk, wild parties, friends who could match my drinks, not necessarily my personality. I was chasing all the shiny things, not realizing that I was also tying my worth to these things as well. It took the world knocking me down pretty hard to finally get the courage to rebuild my life from the inside out. Piece by piece, I discovered what mattered to me. I began to understand my values, the unique vision I had for my life, and what genuinely gave me a sense of purpose. But then, another hurdle. I had all these life plans, but I couldn't seem to align my life to any of them. It's one thing to feel lost, but it's an entirely different thing to know where you want to go and feel stuck where you are. Here's my point. Once I figured out how to align all of those things, my purpose, my dreams, my daily actions, that's when my whole world shifted. It was like turning into a magnet for good things. Opportunities just started coming my way without me having to chase them. People sought me out. Work started feeling fun and easy. This sense of purpose is known as dharma in the Hindu philosophy. It's not just about what you do, but who you are at your core. And just imagine living a life where every decision, every action aligns with your deepest values and passions. It's not just about satisfaction. It's about thriving in your truest form. That's what it's like to be aligned with your dharma. I recently came across this really fascinating study. It measured the intensity and frequency of emotions. It's called the Spain Scale of Emotions, which stands for Scale of Positive and Negative Emotion. Well, guess what they found out to be the highest level of feeling? It's not love. It's authenticity. It's being who you truly are. It's aligning all of you with your knowing. Imagine never experiencing that. And not just never experiencing the full range of positive emotion, but never experiencing you who you truly are. Because, hey, there's a bonus next year, and starting over feels too daunting. Or... I don't really know how to get from where I am to where I want to be. What's harder? Really think about this question. What is harder? A short period of uncertainty while you figure out what's right for you? Or a whole lifetime 
of a slow, dull pain that something's missing and you aren't making the most of this beautiful, magical existence. Well, that's our focus today, Dharma, and how to inch closer to that sense of purpose every day. And while I am not the expert on Dharma, as I'm not an expert on Hindu philosophy, although it really does interest me and I love everything that I learn (laughs) about Hinduism, I have the perfect person that can speak to this so that I don't miss anything. He's on the faculty at Harvard University and the author of Everyday Dharma, the timeless art of finding joy in what you do. Three key things we will learn are how to uncover the bright spots in your life to reveal your true essence and unearth your unique purpose, secrets for balancing personal goals with real-world demands, and how to conquer discomfort with grace and gain the power to expand your boundaries. Also, now is the absolute perfect time for this episode because doors are open for the founding group of Mind Love's brand new Soul Strength Activation. This program is an opportunity to work with me in a small group. It's the most intimate and exclusive program I've ever had. Over three months, we will access your inner power, reprogram your mind for unshakable self-belief, and build the life that truly fulfills you one week at a time. It's also your one-time chance to do this together at over 50% off what any future group will be. So head over to Instagram at MindLoveMelissa for more info. You'll see it all over. And if this is your first time giving your mind a little love, I have a few goodies for you. First, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And second, sign up for the Morning Mind Love. Think of it like a weekday oracle from your highest self to help you start each day with a positive focus. Plus, you'll get two gifts absolutely free, a 30-minute binaural meditation and 30 days of journaling prompts to help you remember who you truly are. So join over 9,000 people and go to mindlove.com to sign up or text the word morning to 33777. And now let's welcome Sunil Gupta to the show. Melissa, it's so good to be here. So what inspired your recent book on everyday Dharma? Yeah, you know, Dharma is your essence. It is, um, you know, what we share with the world through our expression. Uh, There's an equation that I like to keep in mind, which is Dharma is equal to essence plus expression. So when you're expressing this part of you, then you come alive in a brand new way. You feel confident, you feel creative, you feel lit up. And the reason that I wrote this book is because I was feeling really none of those things. You know, I felt like I was sort of in a lot of ways checking off uh, a to-do list for my life, but not feeling a sense of satisfaction at any one of the sort of milestones that I was hitting. And, um, you know, Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar, who was at Harvard and is now at Columbia, um, I teach at Harvard Medical School. And so I I looked into a lot of his his work at the time. And I I realized that he came up with a term that I think described this very effectively, which is the arrival fallacy, the arrival fallacy. And what the arrival fallacy basically means is that we sort of feel like we're going to hit this moment of arrival where all of a sudden we're going to feel all sorts of contentment, fulfillment, happiness, joy. And yet usually what ends up happening is we hit this moment, we hit this milestone in our lives and we quickly adapt to, okay, what's next and what's next after that? So every time we think we're gonna you're gonna hit this red mark red mark of happiness, uh, what ends up happening is we say, all right, the goalpost has moved again. And I found that happening not just for me, but for so many so many others. Um, Dharma is really about how we sort of escape that trap. Um, it's not about reducing your ambition. It's not about uh, not wanting things in life, but it's about reversing the flow. And, and what I mean by that is that. We know based on science, based on um, all sorts of peer-reviewed research that outer success as defined by wealth, status, money, you know, um, achievement, while it's wonderful, it never really leads us to a feeling of lasting inner success, which is joy and happiness and fulfillment. However, we can reverse the flow. We, we can start with joy. We can start with happiness. We can start with fulfillment. And when we do that and we allow it to spill over into all of, our, all of what we do, um, not only does that sort of lead us to a place where we feel better on a day-to-day basis, but it actually gets to better work. 
you look at people who end up reaching the top of their game, it's typically not because they were trying to become a billionaire or they were trying to, you know, become famous. It was because they loved something and that thing was filling up their cup every single day and they allowed it to spill over into everything else in their life in a way that ultimately um, led them to where they are. I recently moved houses and in doing so, I found all these old journals and planners and I totally relate to what you said about how we feel like we're going to hit this point of arrival. And usually we just kind of fly by it and don't even really make note of the milestone. And that happened to me when I was looking at my old best self planners. I was writing down my goals and I had this initial goal when I first started my podcast. Okay, if I can just be making $5,000 a month from my Mm -hmm. podcast, then I'll know that it's really viable. I blew past that, didn't celebrate the milestone and, <laughs> yeah. and instead just moved the needle back a little bit. And I had felt like I was continuously chasing. And so it was just this moment where I'm like, you know what? Yes, that happened years ago, but let me celebrate that for a minute. And let me remember yeah. to celebrate every milestone as I keep going, because otherwise it's just so easy to, like we said, move the needle and not even really realize that we're making progress. Yeah, yeah. Can we find fulfillment from the work itself? And that's not easy. Like, I I don't find that to be easy. I I am very, very goal-driven, very milestone-driven. My background is in engineering. I was a product manager inside big companies. It was all about the goals. It was all about the milestones. But I think at a certain point in time, what I realized is I just wasn't very happy doing what I was doing. You know, and ultimately, like, yeah, I had the I had sort of the LinkedIn profile and the bio that I was setting out to to have, but it wasn't it wasn't making me feel really any differently than I felt even before any of those things happened. So how do you start to feel a sense of joy, not from the results, but from the work itself? I think when we can do that, we come alive in a brand new way. And that's really what this book is about. A lot of people have this sort of skeptical mindset of like, oh, yeah, that's easy for you to say, like, you work for Harvard or you have this show or whatever it is. And they don't see the process of crafting a life that we love for ourselves because they are mar- they're already seeing the end result. Could you elaborate on the concept of the wheel of Dharma and how it influenced your journey back to finding personal fulfillment? Yeah, yeah. You know, so um, I grew up in in Detroit and spent most of my life there. Uh, Both my parents worked um, in the auto industry. They were both laid off in the early 2000s when everything sort of melted down. I I worked as an IT consultant in in a building called the Penobscot Building in downtown. But the thing that for me, I think, shaped so much of my life was an incident that I had when I was very young. I was seven years old. We took a trip to India and I went and met my grandfather and spent time with him for the first time. And my grandfather was this larger than life figure. You know, he's like, you know, he he was, he, he was like six foot something, which like clearly like that part did not pass down like the, the, the hereditary chain to me, but he was also, he, he marched with Mahatma Gandhi, you know, he fought for India's independence and he was this very wise man. And because he was an early riser and because I was jet lagged, we would spend these early morning sessions together. I would wake up super early and we'd sit on his front porch. And one day he pointed at the Indian flag and he said, you see the center of that flag. And I looked and I see this wheel. And he said, that's the wheel of Dharma. Um, it's known as the Ashoka Chakra, you know, to people who, to people who study the flag. And, but, I, but, you know, the, the Ashoka Chakra, this wheel of Dharma, the idea behind it is really a symbol of your life. And, you know, as you get older in life, this is my grandfather telling me this, the wheel starts to spin faster and faster. You know, every year is going to feel like it moved faster than the year before it. Every birthday is going to feel like it showed up just a little bit sooner than the birthday before it. And it's very, very easy in this wheel of Dharma to feel like you get pulled to the outside of the wheel because things start to move so quickly that you're almost just kind of grasping for dear life. And the work, the, 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 the real journey that we take is that when we we realize this has happened, we find our way back to the center. We find our way back to who we really are. 
that doesn't mean that you necessarily abandon your life. It doesn't necessarily mean that you blow up everything that you have. Because look, the reality is, and to your point you were making before, like we have bills to pay. We have things to like we have we have duties, we have responsibilities. A lot of us have a key, I have kids, and a lot of us, I think listening right now have kids, aging parents. We have so much on our plate right now to basically say we're gonna we're gonna sort of like, you know, rip the cord and, and leave all of that is not an option for most of us. So the question really isn't about how we sort of flee. It's about how we start to bring these elements of Dharma into our lives. How do we start to bring just a little bit more of who we are into what we do? And the beauty of that is that even when we can align that just by just by an inch, like even when we make little gains, we start to breathe easier. We start to feel more confident. We start to feel more creative. I mean, there, there is nothing more pleasant, I believe, than starting to feel like you can bring more of who you are into what you do. We're all here just trying to live our best lives, right? And while you're here listening to a podcast, you might feel like you're on the right track, but then you visit family or you have a work deadline or something unexpected comes up and you're all stressed out and it feels like all the work is out the window. That's why it's so important to consciously curate what you can control, like who you surround yourself with, what you watch, what you listen to. So I'm going to add another podcast to your toolbox, The Dr. John Deloney Show. He has a PhD in counseling and has been sitting with hurting people for 20 years. He shares practical advice for everything from how to connect with people, how to face depression, overcome anxiety, and learn just what it means to be well. But what's really cool about his show is you can even leave a voicemail or send an email and he'll address your topic or question about mental or emotional help on the show. So no matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Deloney show is here for you. Listen to the Dr. John Deloney show wherever you get your podcasts or follow the link on the website. I'm constantly sharing with my clients to stop searching in life and instead start aligning. It's true with purpose, with relationships, with higher versions of yourself, and it's also true for hiring. The best way to search is actually just to match with Indeed. Indeed is your one-stop hiring platform with millions of job seekers visiting every month, and their powerful matching engine helps you find quality candidates fast. Plus, Indeed lets you schedule interviews, screen applicants, and message candidates all in one place. But Indeed isn't just about speed. They also deliver quality. According to a recent Indeed survey, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. I love Indeed because it makes hiring so much easier. I'm all about alignment in all areas of my life, and that includes people I hire to work in my business. So I need a hiring partner that makes it simple to find candidates with the right skills. And that's Indeed. And what's really cool is Indeed's matching engine gets smarter the more you use it, learning from your preferences and over 140 million qualifications. Plus, I love that I can do all my hiring in one place. It's just one less thing to keep track of between all of the other things. So join over 3.5 million businesses worldwide who rely on Indeed to find great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash mindlove. Just go to Indeed.com slash mindlove right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mindlove. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I have been playing with different ways of life. And what I mean by that is recently I just had another fed up moment. I've had this a few times in my life and each time I'm like, okay, I get it. What I'm doing is not working for what my goals are. So yeah. I can, I'm going to shift. I'm going to do all the things I've learned about. I'm not going to pretend that just because I read about them, it's going to affect my life. And so lately I've been playing with that with just how I spend my free time. Like, what am I watching or not watching? And so lately I've just been filling all that time with like meditation, inspiring books, all the things. And I did that for like three weeks, felt on such a high. And then I was like, you know what? Like I deserve a break. I sat there for some Saturday and watched like my guilty pleasure that I'm embarrassed to say <laughs> bachelor in paradise. <laughs> I'm like, yes. Watched like three yes. hours of it to catch up. And I was like, and I, afterwards I was just 
all of a sudden, not really in that great of a mood, started second guessing my goals, was getting in my head. And I was like, the one thing you did different today was fill your mind with absolute crap, (laughs) you know? And so I went and meditated instead, got kind of back into my head. And and it was like, I reshaped my outlook on life. And so Mm. I'm not saying that we need to be completely productive at every single moment of the day. But for me, maybe I am like, maybe I do need that because the awareness of how I felt after just a little bit of brain poison, (laughs) as I like (laughs) to call it, was completely different. I think what's fascinating about what you're saying is just just the level of awareness of what happened when you watched. Because I don't think that that necessarily happens to everybody, but knowing if it does is really important. Like my wife is, a, she's a journalist. She's one of the hardest working, brightest people I know. She loves Real Housewives, loves Real Housewives, and she will watch that as her guilty pleasure. And I can see for her, it actually fills her cup back up. Like just sit like she's like just you know fucking leave me alone take the kids <laughs> and like let me go do like let me go sit on the couch with my phone not even sit in front of the TV just on my phone watch Real Housewives and after a half hour it's unbelievable she is she is a she's refreshed right now for me I would have the opposite effect it, that show makes me super anxious we have tried watching that together right but 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 just knowing like I, I think one of the most important tools that that I think is in this book is to have your sort of energy, like your energy list. And by that, what I mean is literally taking a piece of paper and drawing a line down the center. And on one one column, knowing what enhances your energy. And on the other column, being aware of what detracts from your energy. And it's not to say that we can like avoid that stuff, right? There, there, we, there, there are people in our lives that we deal with, that we must deal with, that detract from our energy. There are meetings, there are schedules, there are deadlines, there's things that can detract from our energy. It's not saying you are going to run away from any of that stuff, but just knowing what that is, is really, really important so that you can fuel yourself in the right way before you go there. And then, you know, equally important, what enhances your energy, right? If it's a half hour of Real Housewives, great. Like no judgment, go do that, right? If it's meditation, I think like Melissa, you and me are probably more on the same wavelength, like like know that about yourself. And so that anytime you're looking to refuel, you can pull this piece of paper out, or if it's a list on your phone and pick something off the menu and go do that. So true. And for me, I do know it's different seasons of life around Christmas. I can watch the cheesy rom-coms and feel great about it. (laughs) But right now I have a couple of secret goals that I'm working on. And so I can feel like every time I detract from that. And so I have to check in with my energy frequently to be like, okay, what is working for you now? Is what was working for you last month still working now? Or have your goals shifted? Are your values the same as they were four years ago when you last really did a deep dive? All of those things. It's just me coming into alignment with this version of me that exists today. And what I love about your book is that you break up the wheel of Dharma into these different parts that are all these concepts that we've learned in different ways on this show, but to see them as the holistic view really reminds me about what I was going through because it's not just watching my guilty pleasure show that might be somebody else's energy fuel. It's the holistic view of that. Like how am I feeding myself? Am I getting enough sleep? Like all of those things play into how everything, how I react to each individual thing. So can you tell us a little bit about some of those parts yeah, absolutely. You know, so the the first part is really about how do we start to figure out what our dharma really is. And the way that I really try to break up each of these parts, by the way, is I try to tell us what it is, right? But then I try to break it into like, what are some modern techniques, right? Where is the science of it today? And what are some techniques you can put into practice? So for example, the first, the first part is really about like, okay, what is my essence? Right. Cause I think a lot of us feel this way. We're like, all right, great Dharma. This is, this is purpose, meaning great, but I don't even know what that is. So I don't know how to start expressing that. So let's begin there. Let's, let's do that. And the good news is that you don't have to go find your Dharma. You don't have to go on this massive search. There was a while in my life where I really felt like I needed to go backpacking through the Himalayas. I needed to go live in other countries. And I did all that stuff. And But 
I never really found my answer out there. The, the, the journey is really internal, right? It's already inside of you. But what we need to do is we have to remove the layers sometimes that have gotten in its way. And those layers were put there for really reasonable you know, reasons. I mean, you know, it's, 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 it's all, all the commitments and priorities you've had in your life. It's um, sometimes other people's judgments, you know, other people's priorities, all the things that, that were sort of bestowed upon you that you had to do, right? Well, a lot of that can bury us from who we actually are. And so the work sometimes is uncovering this. And, you know, I think that finding your dharma is less of a transformation and it's more of a revelation. It's probably something that you were in touch with in your life at some point in time. And that may have been last week. It may have been when you were a child, but there was something about you that really felt like your essence. And when you were in that essence, you came alive in a brand new way. We're going back to that. One of the ways that we can do this, one of the simple ways, I, I offer in the book what I call the chisels. And the reason I call these the chisels is because Michelangelo would look at a block of marble and he would say, the sculpture is already inside. I, I just have to chisel away at what's not necessary. Then the same thing is true with your dharma. We're, we're chiseling away these little layers so we can uncover who we are. And one of the chisels that I think is so simple, but I, th I think has been incredibly effective for the people that I coach and help is, is just to start identifying what were the bright spots of my past week or my past month? What were the brightest spots of my day? If I really sort of think about that, because one of the things that we sort of tend to do um, is what neuroscientists call hedonic adaptation. And what hedonic adaptation is, is we basically, every time something, every time something bad and good happens, like we, we like immediately like celebrate it for a moment and then we kind of move on to what's next. Right. But every time something bad happens, we dwell on it right over and over again. We really spend a lot of time on the things that are bad. Right. And the result of it is that we actually don't have as much of these bright spots sort of stored in our memory. We can't really recall them in the way that we can recall these negative moments and negative memories. So there's some work here, some reflection really to kind of think about what were the bright spots of my day. If I think back to my past week, if I think back to my past month on a day-to-day -day basis, where was I really started starting to feel that? When you can start to identify these bright spots, they can be like little portals like little, like little windows back into your dharma. There's a great story. Can I tell you a story about like these bright spots? Definitely. So like, okay, so like Karen, like Karen Struck was a nurse. You know, she's working inside an ER. She really like I think decides like this is like her path. Like she's she's she goes full into nursing, but she feels like something's missing. You know, like a lot of us, she's like showing up and she's starting to feel like I'm not really kind of like enjoying this is the way that I, the way that I like want to be enjoying this on a day-to-day -day basis. She's doing very well. She's getting promoted. And one day she gets promoted into like a very senior role inside an, an ER. She's the chief nurse in this, in this ER at a major hospital. And part of that role involves now doing paperwork, like doing a lot more paperwork, right? And it tends to be the part of the role that nobody likes to do. It's like one of the downsides of, of being promoted is now you have to like deal with all this administrative stuff. But as she started to do this paperwork, she starts to realize like, I actually really like, like this stuff. Like I like doing these forms. I like filling these things out. And she's like, why? Why do I like this so much? And what she realizes is that because every time she fills out a form, she gets to tell a patient's story, not just about the clinical details, but about like, who do they love? What do they love to do? Like, who's at home? Like, she's almost like painting like this like little picture of, of this person. And she realizes that those are the bright spots of her day. Like every day, like she looks forward to that patient paperwork the way that nobody, nobody in her role before her ever looked forward to it. So she starts to realize like, wow, like writing about these stories is something that I really love to do. How do I start to spend more and more time with that? And the way she does that is that she starts to spend like a little bit of like creative time every day. Like she's got a busy schedule, but she starts to spend just a little bit of time, a few moments here and there starting to write starting to write about what she saw in the hospital, starting to share these patient stories. Eventually, those little, those little lines turn into paragraphs. Eventually, they turn into pages. And eventually, they turn into screenplays. She, after 10 years, gets a screenplay 
published that becomes a movie and then she starts her work in television she becomes she becomes a, like like works on some of the hit shows medical dramas on network television it all started because she was identifying this like bright spot in her day and i'm not even saying that by the way you need to like have like your bright spots grow into some major other career the way that karen's did even if she didn't go into television the way that she did she was starting to realize these parts of her day that she like loved and she could start to bring a little bit more of who she was into what she was doing That reminds me of when I was first figuring out, at the time I was calling it, figuring out my purpose. And I was actually sitting there like, okay, I'm going to buy books on finding your purpose. And I'm not going to skip the cheesy exercises and pretend that it's applying to me magically. And what I realized was that I had started to develop this belief that I could never follow through on anything. And in my work, I ended up uncovering that I had somehow adopted that from my dad having ADD and like adopting his story that I heard from my mom after he'd passed. It was a whole thing. But I also realized that, as you said, how we highlight all of the negative aspects or the negative thoughts about ourselves or a situation, I was seeing that I would start these things with great enthusiasm and then dial back. Mm -hmm. And so my story was, maybe I'm just not meant to follow through on something. But what I started to see when I was identifying what actually brought me joy about everything was that I loved big picture planning and I didn't so much like the little tasks, which Mm. yes, I'm sure that's a problem with a lot of people. However, what I learned, how I learned to mitigate it was setting plans on when I could outsource. And so I couldn't do it immediately. I didn't have the money to do that immediately, but Mm -hmm. seeing that there was a light at the end of the tunnel, not, okay, well, I've built this thing and now I have all these tasks to do every single day for the rest of my life. That was what was overwhelming me and getting me to dial back on some of my dreams. But when I could see like, okay, well, after three months, then this should be happening. I could at least outsource this a little bit. How can I uh, streamline my processes a little bit more? It became, again, like I was bringing the big picture to all of these little tasks and it kept my enthusiasm going forward. And clearly I'm still doing mind love, which is kind of what ended up setting me off into that path. And so it allowed me to create, to bring in so much of the passion and the high energy because I trusted that all of these little things were living into what I was good at what I was meant for. And that kind of brings me to the next part of the wheel of Dharma, where you talk about bhakti, full-hearted devotion. Tell us about how that plays into your Dharma. Yeah. So full-hearted devotion, you know, bhakti is really about committing, you know, committing to a course of action and being in it, you know, full-hearted and full-hearted is different than being fully scheduled, right? Because sometimes we think that those two are the same thing. You know, one of the things that can be really frustrating, I think, for a lot of us about, you know, purpose is that, well, I've got a I've got a full-time job and I've got I've got bills to pay, I've got other other commitments and duties and responsibilities. So I have a sense of what my purpose is, but I don't have time for that, right? Practically speaking. And the I think the most important sort of potentially the most important thing about Dharma is that it's not about committing a full clock to the craft, right? It's about having a commitment that is full hearted, even if that's just for a few minutes every day. You know, I mean, the, the example that I, that, that, you know, I love to use is that like with my wife and I, you know, we have two kids and we're like, we're kind of flooded with duties right now. We both have aging parents. We have, we have two kids. Like as soon as like seven o'clock, like clock hits seven o'clock, like our house goes berserk right? It's like shouting, screaming, like they're fighting with each other. And it's like, we're trying to like make breakfast and we're trying to like, you know, maybe get a couple emails done, but it's just like, it's berserk. My wife and I, like we, we realized that the cornerstone of our relationship though, is really the 15 minutes before that seven o'clock happens. And I guess 645, the two of us, we usually sit down together and we'll have a cup of coffee. And for that 15 minutes, we're just connected to one another. Right. And what we've realized over time is like, we can sometimes go weeks if not months sometimes without getting like a date night or getting real like focused time together, right? It's a lot, like long periods of time will pass, not by design, but because just the practicalities of it all. But that 15 minutes every day is really the, the like it is the cornerstone, the foundation of, of our relationship in so many ways. And the same thing is true about your Dharma, right? Like, you know, we think that in order to love something, 
we have to spend every minute of every day and we have to be completely focused on nothing but that one thing. Not, not true. Not true at all. Focused, full-hearted time is really the path to Dharma. And you don't have to look any further than all the people who've, who've accomplished incredible things, though they had demanding full-time jobs. You know, Kurt Vonnegut was, uh, you know, he was, a, he was a car salesman. You know, Philip Glass, the great composer, was a plumber. You know, I, I talk I talk a lot about in the book about Toni Morrison, and I tell the story about her as a single mom of two kids who had a full time job, but wanted to be a writer, like it was something that she wanted to do, and she literally turned scraps of paper into like you know mountains of scraps of paper, which ultimately turned into Nobel Prize winning literature. Right, but that happened from her writing on a bus. But when she was writing on that bus, it was full hearted. She was completely focused on that one thing. Right. So again, like. It is about, even if you have minutes every single day, even if you have seconds every single day, can you make those, can you make those moments as full-hearted as possible? It's so much more important to be full-hearted than to be you know, full-scheduled and part, partly-hearted, half-hearted. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I really need to get something off my chest. Being a mom of a three-year-old boy is really freaking hard, and sometimes it has me questioning my sanity. But then he'll grab my face and call me his sweet little mama. Yes, that's a real thing he says, <laughs> and it will all melt away until I break his banana. I thought I was done with emotionally abusive relationships, but nope. We all carry around stressors, big and small, and when we keep them all bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. For me, just talking things through is hugely helpful, but it's so hard finding friends and family that are unbiased or non-judgmental. And therapy isn't just about dealing with major trauma, you know? It's about learning healthy coping mechanisms, setting boundaries, becoming the best version of yourself. And BetterHelp makes it super convenient, too. Everything's done online so you can fit therapy sessions around your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com MindLove today and get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash MindLove. I love that illustration or the example you used with your wife because so often it's like, okay, say you have that 15 minutes. You're not going to go into the 15 minutes thinking about like what annoyed you that she did yesterday or like the thing, how he hasn't hung the curtains or whatever it is, which <laughs> yeah. just a lot of people aren't as intentional in the time that they have with their partners. And in that same yeah. concept, we're not often as intentional with our dreams, even if we do have just 15 minutes a day to think about them. And so then we go sit to our computer and we're like, well, I'm going to make this digital course or I'm going to work on creating this LLC. And then we don't even realize how much of our time is spent second guessing or doubting that rather than like, okay, yeah, maybe those doubts are valid. I will write them down so that I can solve them rather than just let them live in my head rent free, talking me yeah. out of my biggest dreams. And it just resonates so deeply with me right now because I've been going through the Silva mind control method. And so much of that uh, it involves like sitting there visualizing and really making the time to visualize, which is something that I've known, known for 15 years. But again, it's like we read about it and think it's just applying. We're not, are you really taking 15 to 20 minutes a day to sit there and visualize every detail of your ideal life or what you want to create? Because that is going to be so much more effective than that accidental 15 minutes where you went online and immediately talked yourself out of your biggest dreams. And yeah. so I, I just love that illustration that you used. Yeah, no, I think it's I think it's so important because I've, there are so many people who I, I know who are who become disheartened by the idea of we don't have enough time, right? And it's interesting because this is really what the next chapter, the next part of the the wheel is all about. It's called prana, which is all about energy, right? And what what we what we often sort of think about is time, but when we what one of the things I've realized now as a researcher is that if you look at leaders and teams and people who tend to fizzle out in their lives, people who are, fall out of their dharma and never, never able to really express it, they very rarely do they run out of time or, or even do they run out of talent. 
what they almost always run out of is energy, right? We just don't have enough energy in the tank to go do what we do. I, I really believe that energy is the bridge between who we are and who we want to be, right? And if we don't, if we don't have energy, you can have the best, you can have the best vision, you can have the best goals, you know, but you're just not going to be able to reach that potential. And so what that means then is that while we have, I think, spent a lot of time, you know, like a lot of effort learning how to manage our time, we have to-do lists, we have techniques, we have, we have to also have to learn how to manage our energy. And, and you know, so that's really what that next part of, of the wheel is about. It's called prana, which, which stands for extraordinary energy. And one of the practical techniques inside this chapter is what I call rhythmic renewal, rhythmic renewal which basically means instead of waiting for long breaks or vacations to take moments of rest, you're taking frequent focused breaks every single day. In fact, the average high performer that we study across like all different walks of life is taking somewhere around eight breaks every single day, every, like eight breaks, which I like, I know like usually when I talk to like leaders, like, you know, executives, teams about this, like, like who has time for eight breaks? Like, you know, anybody like who has time for eight breaks? Like our lives are so back to back to back. Every time we finish one thing, we feel like we're late for the next thing, you know? But, you know, the, the model that I offer is what I call the 55-5 model. 55-5, which is pretty simple. It's for every 55 minutes of work, you're taking five minutes of focused, deliberate rest, right? 55 to five. And you might hear that and say, like, how does that help me? <laughs> because right now I'm like struggling to have like time in my day. Like I feel like I never have enough time. And what you're telling me to do is to shrink each hour by five minutes. If I was working an eight hour day, like I'm shrinking my day by 40 minutes. Like, how does that help me? And the reason that it helps you is because what the science says is that if you take these five minute breaks, each of those five minutes is making the other 55 minutes far more effective, far more creative far more collaborative, far more energetic, like all of the qualities that we associate with high performance, all of the qualities we associate with success, you will have more of that during that 55 minutes, right? And, and so one of the things that's been really interesting for me is as I start to play this out with, with teams and with leaders and see how they behave and see how it works for them, the feedback that I get is extraordinary. It's like, wow, this is very, very simple. But for the first time in my life, I'm actually experiencing as much energy at the end of the day as I did at the beginning of the day, just by taking these five minute breaks throughout. That is so profound to me right now, because uh, first of all, I had an app that helped me time block my time and it was always telling me to get up. And I'm like, why are you trying to detract me from my goals? Yeah. But one thing I've been focused on recently, I've been running again. And I used mm. to run cross country in high school and I have been playing with the ideas of intervals again, because I know how much that improves my performance. And so in the same way, whereas, okay, you're running six miles. If you stop and run in intervals, then you can run so much faster overall, even like your end time by taking those minute breaks or 30 second breaks between a eight minute sprint or, or whatever it is. And yeah. not that I'm sprinting for a full eight minutes, but you know what I mean. And so it's like those little breaks help me, my body get used to running at a different pace when I am running. And so then on my next race, my overall time is a lot faster because I wasn't like, okay, starting out at a certain pace and then slowly dwindling down, which is the same thing that we do in our work. We start out totally. full steam usually, and then we slowly dwindle down and we're thinking about something else. We're not on track, but it's just like after a weekend, if you actually like your job, a lot of, for me, Mondays, I get really excited about because I'm like, okay, the nanny's back. I can actually like <laughs> focus right. on my work. And so that's so important. And it also reminds me of my husband and I have been keeping each other accountable about this idea of how we're splitting our energy so often when we are, as A Course in Miracles calls it, or I just read this book, Happy Pocket Full of Money, that was really great. But it talks about this concept of like being too lenient with your mind wandering. Like we think it's just a normal thing, but we're actually splitting our energy and we're saying we don't have enough energy for our dreams, but how much are we just letting leak through with all of these holes that we haven't plugged because we aren't 
focused on training our minds. When we're training for some sort of sport or a physical thing, we know we have to train our bodies, but we don't really give that same consideration to our minds as often. And so that kind of brings me to my next our, the next part of the book, comfort in the discomfort, just because so often I feel it's funny. I have like mixed, mixed messages with this comfort and the discomfort. So often we feel comfortable in something that should be uncomfortable, but we don't feel comfort in these little things where we're just sort of pushing our limits on what we can do, kind of like running in intervals or, or getting refocused. So tell us what that means to you. There's a, um, uh, a Buddhist parable that I think about constantly, and it's a it's called the tale of the prickly porcupine. And basically, the, the tale goes that you know there were these porcupines, and they would huddle together in the winter for warmth. But when they huddled together, you know they would they would needle each other, they would poke each other, and so eventually they get so sick and tired of, of like the discomfort that came with needling and poking that they disbanded. But when they disbanded, they had to go out into the cold, and they felt lonely, and they felt they felt you know frigid. Um, they couldn't survive. And so eventually they had to learn to come back together and huddle together for warmth, even with the pricks, even with the pokes, right? And they had to learn how to find comfort in the discomfort. And I, th- I love it because it's such a, I think it's such an apt metaphor for our lives, right? I mean, there, there, are, there are annoyances and distractions and all the things that, we, that make us uncomfortable everywhere, everywhere, right? At home, at work, no matter where we go, it could be people cutting you off on the side of the road, like it's going to follow you. You can't necessarily run away from that. And by the way, like we know that a lot of the growth happens from those, it comes from those annoyances. It comes from the setbacks. It comes back from the mistakes, right? That's where we actually tend to grow. So instead of trying to run away from that, we have to learn how to find comfort in those moments. Much easier said than done. I dedicated a whole chapter to really what was like, what's the latest in science around how we find comfort in the discomfort? You know, Viktor Frankl, I think did a lot of important work in this area. He was a neurologist. He was a Holocaust survivor. And, you know, he wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. And one of sort of the, the, the terms that I think he helped popularize was equanimity, equanimity. And, and equanimity is really the distance between impulse and response. It's the distance between something that agitates, annoys you, and the way you respond to that thing. And what Viktor Frankl said is that in between those two points is a space. And inside that space is where your freedom lies. So if something irritates you and you react immediately, well, then you don't have much freedom. And the reason that you don't have much freedom is because you didn't have any choices. You didn't really, you didn't really sort of weren't able to draw any of the choices of how you could have responded to that thing because you responded so immediately to it. So you think about like you, Melissa, like you, you like read like more than most people I know, you're like constantly learning, you're developing new skills, but if you don't have any space to use those in these moments of discomfort, well, then it doesn't really matter, right? All the skills you built doesn't really, it's all for naught. So in a lot of ways, I think like the, the, this this concept in the book we call it upeka upeka which is comfort and the discomfort is the foundation of everything else because if you don't have that space you can't employ any of the other techniques that we learn right um, one of the ways that I think about finding comfort and discomfort it's a ritual that I offer in the book is called finding a home base finding a home base which means that whenever something is agitating you or irritating you you know whether it be at home or whether it be at work or wherever you are having a simple gesture something simple that you can do to come back to yourself come back to your home base before you respond to that thing now for me it's really like it's very easy i like to put my hand on my chest and just kind of give myself like a little pat right and just that simple gesture is almost in some ways like a little reset button for me it just kind of it just kind of gets me back to myself and i literally just tap myself a couple of times and it's like just a little bit of comfort right it's a little bit of love even if the things around you aren't giving you love you can give yourself that little bit of love in that moment and that kind of extends this distance between impulse and response some people like more like more mental more visual right like so a lot of people i work with they don't do anything physical but their way of getting to a home base is by literally imagining themselves like petting their dog or visiting a stream that they used to love when they were a kid. There's like a something visual that they come back to in these moments of irritation. And again, like this isn't about like taking you out of the present moment. You're not like trying to escape. You're not trying to flee. But what you are doing is you're coming back to your center, right? And by coming back to your center, what you're doing is you're elongating 
that space between impulse and response. And when you elongate that space, it gives you choices. You can start to use some of the, some of the, some of what you've learned. And when you can get to use with some of what you learned, that's where you get you reclaim your freedom. I ha- actually have a little trigger that I use in a similar way, but for a different response. And I will push my pinky to my palm. And it's something that you don't do mm. often because the other fingers hit first. But mm. I read that the pinky to the palm is actually your pinky is one of your connections to higher wisdom. And so huh. that pinky to the palm is like a reminder to get in and access your intuition. And so a lot of times when, yep. And so they do it in the Silva mind control method. It's one of the ways um, where you just kind of tap there and it'll activate your training. And so when I do that, it, it reminds me because so often when I'm in reactivity, I'm totally in my ego and I am reacting from my programming, from my human self versus my higher self. And so that's just been my my little trigger. And it'll immediately sort of expand my focus from my tunnel vision to like the space around me. I'm like, what energy can I pick up? What really is going on here? What can I sense from this person? How can I access my higher wisdom in this moment? And it's been really helpful. So thank you for that reminder, because those little, I remember learning about just different triggers you could use, and it could be anything really that stimulates yourself. But a hypnotist told me back in like 2019 when um, he was helping me with something. And and so I've been trying to just find my little triggers for specific things during the day. But there's another- I love that. (laughs) I love that. Well, I was just going to say, you know, the other day I was talking to somebody about this exact thing, and he told me he loves to wiggle his toes. It's like in the middle of a meeting or, you know, difficult conversation just wiggles his toes and that kind of, that's his home base. I love pinky to palm. I'm going to try that myself. Yeah. And I like the wiggling the toes. The first thing that came to my mind was, oh, I bet that would help me remember to be grounded because it's something that Mm. I do. I've been doing yoga for like 16 years now. And when I'm like standing tall in mountain pose, I always will expand my toes and kind of push them down. I'm like, I bet I can use that in other situations as well. And so I realized like finding things that work for you is really effective because you already have been giving meaning to different things your entire life. So might as well use that meaning that you've already created. Yeah. Yeah. The next part of your wheel is all around high play. And (laughs) I am so excited to talk about this because people have these ideas in their mind where it's like, okay, find my purpose where work doesn't feel like work anymore. But then when they start working on it, it's like they forget that that's the goal is to find the joy in their moments. And then they're like, oh, it's too much work. I'd rather just feel comfortable going over here. And again, not saying that you've got to leave your job to do this, but we take ourselves too seriously so often. So I'm curious to hear what your interpretation of high play is and how it fits into our dharma. Um, Can I just say, Melissa, like I'm one of those people you just described. I take myself too seriously. I'll go find something that like I love to do. And I'm like, oh, I love to do this. And then like I start working on it and all of a sudden I'm like in serious mode again, (laughs) you know, and it happens to me all of the time. This was the hardest chapter for me to write because I had to remind myself that like with any of this, I'm not writing as an expert, I'm writing as somebody who needs this. And so I need to go figure this out. And what, like, what is, what is this sense of like blurring the lines between work and play? And why is it that so many like high, high performers, people who have achieved the very, very top of their game across all these different fields, have talked about this. I think the scientist who probably brought most of this to the forefront was Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, who was the uh, author of Flow. And what you know, Csikszentmihalyi said before he he died is really that like you know there are sort of two sides to our personality. There is the autotelic side, and there's the exotelic side. The autotelic side is the side that like loves like the process, like really like digs into like the work itself. Then the exotelic side is the side that cares most about the goals, right? The deadlines, the achievements, the metrics. And I think the the myth that he helped really kind of dispel is that people who are highly successful are very exotelic in nature and not autotelic in nature. In other words, they care 
about the goal, like the, the, the eye on the prize, right? Like keep your eye on the prize type of type of mentality. What he found is that the, like equal, if not more number of people who are actually autotelic in nature, meaning like it's not that they don't care about the goal, but what they care about more is the work itself. In, in, the, in the book, I call this the music mindset, the music mindset, because what, the, you know, if you think about music, when you listen to music, you're not listening to it in order to hear the last note. Right? You're listening to music because you want to enjoy every single note in between, right? And I think as kids, we really kind of understand the music mindset. Like we're, we're kind of like in it to be in it. We're not in it for it to end. But I think as adults, we kind of lose that. And so I think the question is, how do we start to kind of bring some of that, some of that back? And I think it's really about tapping into this autotelic side of us. And one of the ways that I talk about in the book of doing that is what I call high-quality habits, high quality habits. And the way that I define that in the book is, is that like a high quality habit is, you know, we tend to think about habits as like something that is good for us, right? Like we want to build like good habits, but the problem is that sometimes good habits are not habits that we enjoy. A high quality habit is a habit that is good for you and you actually enjoy doing, right? And if you can find even just a small set of those things, Doubling down on that is really, really important. Uh, Kevin Kelly, who is the founder of Wired Magazine, said that too many people spend their time trying to find like better ways to do their tasks. But instead, what we should be doing is we should be spending time figuring out tasks that we never want to stop doing because we enjoy it. Like we really love it, right? And so when we can start to really kind of identify these high quality habits in our lives, these things that we don't want to stop doing, that's when we start to see really results. Yeah, I, before I became an author, I, I was a startup founder. I started a company called Rise, and we did one-on-one nutrition coaching. Uh, my father, you know, had had an emergency triple bypass surgery, and he's in his forties. He was rushed to the hospital. We nearly lost him that day, and you know, he was able to rebound his health through the help of a health coach. You know, insurance helped pay for it, and we were lucky in that way. And he, he ended up adding like decades to his life as a result of that. And basically Rise was about how do we bring that service to other people? And, you know, one of the things that I realized is that people would often come to our platform looking to lose weight. And they would often say like, I want to cut out carbs. Like I want to cut out carbs altogether, right? Like that was like the, that was like the enraged sort of thing, especially when I was starting the company. But what I realized is that like most of those people loved carbs, right? They loved pasta. They loved bread. They, they loved rice. And the problem with that, that approach is that like every day would feel like a slog for them. And so they would get some results in the short term, but eventually like their willpower would run out and they would gain any, any weight back that they had lost. But when we found little habits that people loved to do, right? For example, drinking a couple of glasses of water, like right, before every meal, right? Or in between meals so that you're hydrating yourself and you're keeping yourself satiated. That was a habit that people started to kind of fall in love with, right? They would like put like flavorings in their water, like, you know, natural flavorings in their water. They would, they would you know, carry around cool water bottles and they would turn it into something that like they actually enjoyed. And while they didn't get as much like of a, like a drastic result in the first few weeks as you would have, if you like cut out carbs altogether, the results came and they lasted over time. And the reason that they lasted over time is because they were having fun with it. Like they enjoyed it, right? So that is one of the ways that we can start to blur the lines between work and play is by finding these little habits, these little things that we never actually want to stop doing because we actually enjoy it for the habit itself. I have found that the more I focus on the feeling I get after it, that's when I really start to create lasting habits. And this is one of the ways mm. that like meditation is one of my favorite things to do. When I started meditating, I thought it was miserable. I'm like, really? I have to do nothing? And like, I'm just sitting there like thinking about all my worries and like what I have to do. And now I have connected it to this feeling of euphoria because I will sit there afterwards and I'm like, how do I feel now compared to before? And it's so connected because I kept doing it for so long that like when I feel tired or just disheveled or in a negative mood, there's so many triggers where I'm like, I need to meditate right now. And I get excited and like elated to do it. And that brings that. me to my last one that I think we'll have time to touch on today. But you talk about forgetting yourself to find yourself. And it reminds me of something that has been coming up in conversations in my household a lot about how 
I think Ram Das or Alan Watts said this, but it's a, about how like you're you're getting to this place of no ego, and the ego wants it so bad, and <laughs> that's kind of the the back and forth of of the challenge of how when people are chasing something like enlightenment or whatever it is, it's like, yeah, your ego wants this and your ego wants to say that you have it, but the only way to get it is by actually forgetting the ego. So tell Mm. us how that plays into Dharma. You know, um, as an Indian kid growing up in the United States, like I always felt like what you just described was like the, like the terror in my life, right? Like if I was inside the temple, I was learning about egolessness Right, because that's that in a lot of ways is like rooted in Hinduism. You know, Gandhi Gandhi was the person who said you have to lose yourself in order to find yourself, right? So it was all about sort of taking yourself to zero, about removing the ego. But as soon as the temple doors would swing open and I was back in like Western culture, it was all about like, you know, take life by the horns and like, you know, get it done. And, you know, and, and it was just it was a very it was two very, very different sort of ways of looking at the world. And as like an as an Indian, like growing up in, in America, like I always felt like how like which side do I choose? And and I think what I ultimately what I ultimately ended on is that we don't necessarily have to choose one or the other. But I think ultimately what what I think that this game is this game of Dharma is a balance between force and trust. Right. So if trust is about becoming egolessness, emptying yourself to zero, and trusting the universe, force is about like again like get it done, like you know be gritty, hustle hard. Right. I think it is finding. What percentage makes sense for you? What percentage of force makes sense and what percentage of trust makes sense? Because those two do interplay with each other. In a lot of ways, it's kind of like sailing. You know, it's the the wind is blowing in your sails, but you also have to sort of navigate the sail in the right way. So it is a partnership. And I think that partnership can be titrated. It can be dialed up up and down the way that you want it to for different moments. Like for me, when I when I started writing books, I started getting invited to come speak in front of audiences. And, and that, like, I'm, like a lot of people, I was terrified of public speaking. Like I didn't like speaking in front of audiences. I would get scared. My, my hands would clam up and sweat through my clothes. It was, it was embarrassing. But what I found is that like I was putting way too much force into each time I got up on stage. Right. I would like take all of my notes up with me. I would stand behind the podium. I would try to get every single detail right. I was trying to force it, but I started to titrate down and allow more trust in not, not like empty myself to zero and like throw caution to the wind. But I started to say like, how much like intensity do I really actually need here in order to be successful? And usually the answer was not 100%. Usually the answer was like, if I brought 70% pressure up there with me, I can allow 30% of it to be just trust, like trust what's going to happen up there. And so for the, I think the lesson is for these different moments in our lives, like really throughout the day, before you go into a meeting, before you walk in with your family, before you sit down with your kids or whatever it is, ask yourself like how much force, like how much effort do I actually need in this situation, right? Because usually the answer is not 100%. And what we find when we look at performers, like high performers, what we ultimately find is that they're not, they're not following this thing that we've con- been conditioned to believe, which is that maximum pressure equals maximum results. What they're actually doing is they're learning how to dial it down and dial it up based on the situation. What does it call for? But very rarely do I find anybody like squeezing so tightly that they're at 100%. Usually they're, they're titrating somewhere between like 50% and 80%, even at work, right? They're finding sort of what's the balance there and then allowing more of that trust to come in. And that's such a good piece of advice, even for this overall concept that we're talking about, because the amount of people that reach out to me that they're like, I just can't find my purpose. And I'm like, it seems like you're putting a whole lot of pressure on that. Maybe find yeah. your play or find your passion or find like just anything in your day that lights you up and lean into that and then see what unravels. Maybe the next step will be revealed to you. And so thank you so much for all of the energy and effort that you've put into this book. It was It's so enlightening. It's so helpful for people that are on that journey. And even in the middle of it, I'm going through a transformation right now. And just coming back to these concepts is so helpful. And we only got mm. to like six slices of the pie. So if you want those last two pieces, <laughs> go check out his book. For listeners that are interested in learning more about you and your book, Everyday Dharma, where's the best place for them to connect? 
you know, I think the easiest thing, just search everyday Dharma online and it'll lead you to your favorite sort of book, book place to buy books. And you can check out the book and check out the description. And if you want to learn more about me, it's just sunilgupta.com. All the links for this episode will be at mindlove.com slash 334. Your challenge for this week is simple. I want you to be honest with yourself. Give yourself a real audit about your level of happiness and alignment in your life. So I'm not just talking about, you know, Saturdays at 2 p.m. You actually feel happy because you're finally feeling it like yourself. I want to know how much of your life feels like it's truly you. Do you feel like you're living from your core? You're leaning into your gifts with all of the work that you do? Or are you just showing up to a job just to get paid? I know how hard it can be to break out of this paradigm, but I believe, I truly believe, that it's one of the most important things that you can do. I understand what it feels like to feel broke and stuck. I understand what it feels like to feel like you have a family to feed. And I also know what it feels like to feel lost and broken and wondering if I even really have a purpose, wondering if all of those things that I heard was meant for somebody else instead of me. And I know what it feels like to be on the other side, to find the thing for me, to realize that all the things that I was so afraid of weren't that bad at all. The several years that I had to be on much more of a budget than I was used to being on. But looking back, those were some of the best years of my life and it didn't decrease my level of happiness whatsoever. Most of the fear came from that resistance. And the payoff of knowing that I was on the right path and feeling good about every single day that I showed up to live in this purpose was well worth any amount of leap that I had to take, of uncertainty that I had to be in. And I need to tell you, there is one thing that separates the people that seem to use life as a canvas for their dreams and everyone else. And that one thing is being able to make a move when the future seems unclear. It's realizing that if you are waiting for certainty and clarity, you're going to be waiting forever. Those things don't find you. You create certainty and clarity because you decide on it. You decide, I'm going to find this. I'm going to be this. I'm going to do this. I might not know what it looks like right now, but I'm going to take that leap. And that is one of the most self-loving things that you can do. If you need help, please reach out to me on Instagram. This is literally my greatest passion in life because I know how many of you are feeling those soul whispers. And I know what a change it can make in your life. Literally feeling like it blossoms open into something that you may have never even experienced before. So reach out to me on Instagram at mindlovemelissa or send me an email, whatever you have to do to get a hold of me and say, hey, I don't know what I'm doing, but I feel the nudge and I will help you. As I mentioned in the beginning of this episode, if this is speaking to you, I have the perfect program for you. It's launching very soon next week, the week after, very soon. So reach out to me ASAP and we can see if this is right for you. I'd love to hear your vision, your dreams, whether you're clear on them or not. And maybe, just maybe, we'll get to know each other pretty well in these next couple months. You can find all of my sponsors at mindlove.com sponsors. There's some great ones. I've got their discount codes and deals on that page. And that's all for today. So thanks for giving your mind a little love today and I'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning into your higher frequency with Mind Love. Head to mindlove.com for a free gift to keep your vibes up until next week.